Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPup, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Larry Shoshansky. Based in Providence, Rhode Island, Larry is a psychotherapist with over 35 years' experience in social work and counseling, and speaking publicly about a wide range of subjects, including how we have the power to have the kind of relationships we want. His work has been featured in venues like the Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, Fast Company, and many others. You can follow him on Twitter, at Larry Shoshansky, and check out his website at independentenough.com. Larry is the author of the book, Independent Enough, a book about relationships. In the book, Larry talks about the independent enough process and how it was developed over the years and shared with people of all kinds of backgrounds, from individuals to groups at schools and universities, community groups, and private companies. In this interview, we're going to talk about Larry's background and career, professional interests, his book, and the importance our own personal independence can have for our relationships with other people. So thank you, Larry, for being on the Front Matter podcast. You're welcome, Lynn, and thank you for having me. I appreciate that a lot. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin story. Um, I know you have a pretty developed one, and it's a big question, but I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about um, where you grew up and, and how you first became interested in social work and psychotherapy. Sure. <clears throat> I, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, a southerner, and uh, during the summers we would go to Virginia Beach, and I remember playing on the beach from early in the morning until dinner time. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. The problem was, is my father was abusive. He used to hit and beat me pretty often. Not my sisters or my mother, but somehow he had it out for me. So when I finally graduated high school and went to college, I was really a shell of a person. I was extremely immature. I had a hard time maneuvering through any kind of situation. And, and worked my relationships. While I had a lot, they were just not quality or good relationships. When I hit 20 in 1971, I started to do a lot of alcohol and a lot of drugs. And I remember the first time I stuck a needle in my arm, uh, the rush was just like so intense and just so quick that I had to stand up and run to my, the, bat, the sink in my dorm room and just throw up. And from there, I just kept using and using and using and until I finally quit school. I uh, quit or dropped out or flunked out. It's kind of hard to know. But at that point, there was a draft lottery, and my number was 51, and I went into the service for six years. When I got out of the service, I went back to my hometown and went back to a local university Old Dominion University, and I wanted to do some service. I wanted to do some volunteer. I was driving my car one day, and this advertisement for volunteers at a rape crisis center came up. And I just thought I'd give a call. It didn't even strike me that I was a male walking into a mostly female organization. But they were open-armed about it. And from there, I did like a 12-week training, and I just fell in love. I mean, it just grabbed me. And it was hard work, it was difficult, it was heart-wrenching and really just, um, I don't know any other way to say it other than that, but I loved it. I really did. I was drawn to it. And from there, I got my undergraduate degree, went to graduate school in social work, and specialized in family therapy and did a lot of couples and a lot of relationships. And for years, maybe about 30 years or so, I tried to write about it. I tried to write articles. I wrote um, what I thought was books about it. I wrote uh, poems about it. I mean, you name it. I went to workshops. I, I even went overseas once and did a conference 
a writing conference. I had two writing coaches, but I never, ever, like never <clears throat> could publish anything. Never got anything published in 30 years. And then in 1990, I was diagnosed with hepatitis C, which was a virus that came from my drug abuse, came from the needles that I used. I'd been carrying it around for 20 years and not even knowing it. And it made me fatigued and I was depressed and I wasn't clear thinking, but I didn't realize what that was all about. It just kind of felt naturally natural to me. And I, at that point, I stopped using everything. Uh, I haven't had a drink or any kind of substance in 30 years. And my idea, <clears throat> excuse me, Ryan, my idea was that if I could stay alive long enough until they could find a cure, then I'd be all set. And so I started, I stopped substances, like I said, I ate better. Um, I exercise, I got into my spirituality and expanded that. And my buddy said that was just nuts. They, they said, man, you're just going to die from this. And uh, I don't have very understanding buddies, but you know how we rip on each other. But that's what I did. And three years ago, I was put in a phase three trial after having been in two trials of ribavirin and interferon, which one of them almost killed me. They had to stop the treatment. It was so bad for me. But three years ago, I was put in this phase three trial, and it was like, boom. Within weeks, I was cured. It was gone. And it was like I could think clear. I had energy. I wasn't tired anymore. I didn't take naps. It was like I get goosebumps when I even talk about it. It was just like it was like knowing myself for the first time. It's like being introduced to myself for the first time. And it was like a, like, it was like a miracle. I, I don't know any other way to explain it. And within a couple of years, I had my first book out. I mean, it was just like, boom, everything I'd been working with on had just coagulated and just came together like this. And that's how I came up with the book. And I've been talking about it and going to places and doing podcasts and radio state ever since. So that's my story. It's such an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, including something you sort of uh, went over rather quickly, which was uh, being being drafted uh, yeah. to to serve at the time of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I think I, I actually listened to a couple of your interviews preparing uh, that you did on the radio, uh, preparing for this interview. And I believe that there was something that actually really surprised me. You were talking with somebody about having dropped out three times uh, right. from college. And you said to, to the interviewer, and you know what that was all about, right? Ha, ha, ha. And he did, but I didn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe being, you know, I, I was born in the mid-70s, kind of after the, after the Vietnam, War, Vietnam War ended, and I would, you know, grew up in Canada. Uh, so it's a little bit less familiar to me than it might be to you. But what did dropping out of university or college have to do with not getting called up for the draft? So back then, uh, there were certain deferments. And one was if you're in college, you got deferred. So rich kids, kids who were, had, were in college and universities, parents could pay for it, basically, got, uh, um, you didn't have to do your service. But if you were not in school or if you flunked out or dropped out, then you had to do your service. Your number was up. The way it worked was that they had, they had a lottery system. And it was, it was kind of almost, almost like the lotteries you see on television where they'd have these ping pong balls. And they would pick a date, let's say March 23rd, and they'd stick it up on the wall, and that would be number one, right? And then the second one would be June 23rd, and that'd be number two. My number happened to be 51. And so what happened is, is each state or each kind of county had a draft board, 
and each draft board had to meet a quota of X amount of, and back then it was men, X amount of men who they had to send to, to serve in the armed forces. So my draft board took everybody from one to 125. And because I was 51, boom, I was in. And that's how it worked. Okay, thank you for explaining that. I guess my, my misunderstanding was I thought it was the dropping out part that helped avoid getting called up, but it was the joining back that helped avoid potentially the joining. Like if, if one dropped out of a college, it was joining a new college that helped one defer the draft. Okay, that was what I didn't understand. Right, I'm sorry. As long as you're in college, we're good to go. But again, my addiction just didn't allow me to stick it out. And I had a few options um, that I didn't take. One was to go to Canada. Uh, back then, though, you'd lose your citizenship. One, I was living up in a commune at that point in the southwestern part of Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley, the Shenandoah Mountains. And I had a couple of buddies who were draft evaders, and they were living so far off the grid, they didn't even get mail, no electricity, no nothing, and they invited me to join them. And then the third was um, somebody gave me a doctor's note that said I had diabetes and gave me three bottles of glucose and an envelope of sugar pills. And they said if right before my physical for the induction, I would take the uh, sugar pills and drink the three bottles of glucose and the board could keep me for up to three days and it would still show sugar in my u urine, which would show that I was diabetic. The problem with that is about a month before I was ready to go to my physical, a good buddy of mine had been convicted of draft evasion and he was spending five years in a federal penitentiary. And I just, that just, all the options just scared me to death. So I ended up joining the Navy and I spent six years in the Navy. And you want to hear the most incredible part about it? So I'm, I'm not, I was not a gung-ho military person by any stretch. But the amazing part about it is after I joined, two weeks after I joined, they ended the draft. Oh, my. <laughs> but I was in. And so I spent the next six years doing service. And where were you stationed? I was stationed in – I did boot camp in um, uh, just north of uh, – in Waukegan, just north of Chicago. I was in a specialty school there in Waukegan as well. And then I was sent to Japan. And I did the bulk of my service in Japan. I, I'm really curious because, I mean, it's an important part of, of your story. Uh, how, did, how did you manage your drug use while you were in the military, if that's something you're willing to talk about? Yeah, well, what happened is when I, when I finally left my last college and university, I wanted to get clean. I mean, I was, I was just so down and out. I mean, I'd, I'd hit up anything. I can remember once hitting up something, I didn't even know what it was. I found some tablets in my um, medicine cabinet in my dorm room, melted them down, hit them up. And I mean, I was so desperate and I just, it just wasn't working for me. So going up in the mountains helped me separate from the people who provided me those kinds of drugs. So I was partially on my way, if not mostly on my way before I went into the service. So what I did in the service was I substituted my drug addiction for alcohol. And that's how I got through. Because I got to tell you, in the Navy, there's a ton, just a ton of drinking, at least back then. And so I came out of the service an alcoholic. Um, and so I battled both. And when I went back to college, 
periodically I'd run into somebody who had some dope and I'd use that, but it was mostly drinking. Um, and then, uh, when I got diagnosed, like I said, uh, in 1971, I, I was in my mid thirties or late thirties or so. It just scared the weebie jeebies out of me. And I went, boom, that's it. I'm not using it anymore. Uh, that you're reminding me of a, I mean, I know this is, this is, uh, not all some, there's, there's, there's a lot of humor in a lot of things that aren't, that aren't entirely humorous, but you're reminding me when I was in grad school, I lived in a, in a house that was actually, uh, owned or rented by the Navy. And, uh, the sort of main roommate I had was, uh, an officer in the Navy and he's the only person I've ever seen actually turn green, uh, <laughs> <laughs> from drinking. I was like, Oh, that's what I read about. <laughs> there used to be, there used to be, we used to play cards sometimes and there was these chiefs who had been in the service for life, like 25 years, and their claim to fame was their stomach was so big from drinking, they could actually put a beer on their nose <laughs> and hold it there while they played cards. It was, it, was a, it was a drink fest. And, you know, it's interesting because when I came back, I was really shunned by a lot of people. People were spitting at me. People would throw things at me when they found out I was in the service because Vietnam was just not popular back then. And um, let me see. I lost my train of thought. And so so now when when Veterans Day rolls around and people – because it's really hot. It's a a thing now to really congratulate veterans and being proud of America and that kind of thing. And when people come up to me, they said, thank you for your service. I go, you know, America is no safer now than when I was in the service. Trust me, I didn't do anything at all because I didn't fight. You know, I know I had friends who lost their lives in Vietnam. And I can remember going maybe 10 years after the service, I went to Washington and I saw the uh, the Vietnam Wall. And I got to tell you, I, and I'm getting weepy now talking about it. I just cried because the service I did was nothing compared to what some of these guys and women did, you know, and they really gave their lives and PTSD and lost limbs and you know, I'm in Japan drinking like the majority of the service. People were to Germany and 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 stayed in the states, and you know, were in the Philippines and Korea without war, and you know, just the you know, and to be lumped in with people who say thank you, I just think it does a disservice. And so I tell people, you know, it's it's yeah, please don't thank me because I didn't do anything special. It's, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that and, and for bringing that up. Actually, it's something that I think is um, sort of rather quickly getting lost in the culture that a lot of people went to Vietnam against their own will. Um, and uh, a lot of people died there. And many of them disagreed with what they were doing and came back to hatred. Absolutely. It was not like nowadays when you get to go like, you know, board the plane first and right. things like that. Like it was or a really off. serious thing. Right, or when you get off the plane, people cheer for you, and you have families and and friends and American flags. It was nothing like that at all. And you know, as bad as I had it, I just can't imagine people who were in the war and who fought the war, and they had to come back to that kind of mentality. And I often think that the Vietnam War created a certain social consciousness. For people, so we went into the next war, like the Iraq War and Afghanistan and that kind of thing. I think it raised a lot of people's awareness to, you know, to be decent to veterans and to support them as opposed to anything else. Um, and I think that's a legacy of the Vietnam War. 
since we've since we've strayed rather quickly into politics. Um, no, no, that's that's fine. Actually, I've got I've got this is sort of a long setup, but I think you'll you'll know where I'm going with this question. So um, we'll we'll be getting to your book and the independent enough process and concept uh, pretty shortly. But you've spent uh, your career uh, helping people with their relationships. Yep. Um, and um, you've got a lot of mileage. And one thing I wanted to talk to you about is one feature of our current moment uh, is how politics is straining relationships between family members. Right. Uh, basically, after, like the way I like to think about this personally is after high school, we basically can silo off our lives uh, from people we profoundly disagree with or even right. view as morally wicked, except right. for our families. And it's Thanksgiving time in the U.S. right now. And although jokes about arguments with your distant cousins or your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving are, you know, all well and good, it's actually a really serious issue. I have someone in my family who's become a straight up white supremacist, uh, repeating rhetoric straight out of, I mean, I do a little bit of historical research in, in my work and, you know, repeating rhetoric straight out of like KKK speeches from the early 20th century. Like it's the same, it's the right. same words. Exactly. And, and I wanted to ask you as, as psychotherapist and, you know, former social worker who's been dealing with relationships in the U.S. with people since, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. Is there something different that you're seeing? I mean, you can't talk about people individually, but are you seeing an impact from our current politics on people's relationships? Yes. When I was, when I was growing up in, in my teens and early 20s and mid to late 20s, um, politics was contentious. There was no doubt. But then people would shake hands and you go have a beer or you go do whatever you wanted to do kind of thing. Now that, um, like I remember Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, uh, publicly they would let just like, you know, be after each other, they'd shake hands and then they'd go have dinner. You know, they respected each other. There was a first certain friendship about it. There was a certain, um, I understand it's political. I understand where you're coming from. Yes, I understand where you're coming from. But there's no one, there, there's a lack of understanding. People are just so... I just came back from a trip to visit my in-laws because they're 96 and 91. And I went with my wife and my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And my brother-in-law and my um, uh, father-in-law are opposite poles from me. I mean, they're, they're this and I'm that. I mean, they are so far right and I'm so far left kind of thing. And we, 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 what I tried to do let me try to answer your question first. So what happens is that um, after a day of watching um, uh, Fox News and listening to them, I went back to my hotel room and I picked up a New York Times and a Washington Post. And, and I, was, I was reading and, and it struck me that it, they were talking about the same events, you know, the impeachment hearings. But it was like they were talking from two different universes. You know, one universe had their truth and the other universe had their truth. And there was really no meeting in between. It was like it was just like I'm stuck here and you're stuck there kind of thing. And there's no attempt at understanding where the other people are coming from. And so what I have tried to do in my life is when I have political discussions, I try to it's not so much about proving a point for me. It's about trying to understand where somebody else is coming from. I want to be connected in the way that I want to be connected. So when my brother-in-law starts yelling 
about his point of view and I say to him, look, I, I want to talk to you for an, ever in a day, but I needed reasonableness to take place here. We both simmered down and we were both able to have reasonable conversation. And I, and I saw glimmers of him understanding me and glimmers of me understanding him. For example, he said to me once, he says, you know, immigrants come over now illegally. Our grandparents came over legally. And I said, not mine. My parent, grandparents came over illegally. They did everything they needed to do to leave Russia illegally so they can enter the United States illegally. And he says, yeah, but they spoke English. And I said, no, my grandmother never learned a word of English. And yet they were very successful. I, told, I tell him the story about how my grandmother owned real estate while she was over here. And they used to have to go to court. My grandmother and my mother or my aunt would go to court with my grandmother. And they would act as interpreters to my grandmother when they had to evict somebody or something or the, or the city called them on the carpet because they were, they, there wasn't proper maintenance on the property. And so she would talk to my mother in Yiddish. And my mother would talk to the judge. And then the judge would talk to my mother and she would talk to Yid, you know, my, my grandmother Yiddish. And at one point, the, the judge says to my mother, tell your mother if she ever learned English, she'd be a dangerous woman. <laughs> but it was, it was this understanding that I could give him examples of where his rhetoric was wrong. And then he was able to give me examples of how my rhetoric was wrong. And we didn't meet in the middle. You know, we didn't we didn't move. But there was this there was this there was this overlap of understanding, you know, that we're not the enemies with one another. Right. We don't need to sing Kumbaya. We don't need to go off hand in hand, hand in hand or arm to arm. But just to be able to enter into some sort of reasonable conversation and that's what I do with couples all the time who come in and they're arguing and they're trying to prove points and they're in power struggles. What they're missing is that if you can talk within, if you imagine two points, a lower and a top, and that between these two points is reason, rationale, decency, and attempt to get the relationship to work, you can talk all day long. But once you go over that, once you get into accusations and, and arguing and trying to prove points and, and, and power struggles and, and attacking and criticism, it's got to stop. And you got to back away and back down into a, that place of reason where you can have a conversation. Because he's not changing my mind and I'm not changing his, but that doesn't mean we can't understand one another. And I don't mean that in a new agey, esoteric superficial way. I mean, in a really practical kind of, yeah, I get it kind of way. Does yeah. that answer your question? Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, it, it's interesting that um, one of the things that people in philosophy talk about when they, when they're talking about reason, you know, people often confuse reason with logic. Right. Reason, right. reason is something publicly available that's shared. Right, exactly, and, and 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 that's that's I think like what you're what you're getting at a very like I totally with you at how, pract, at how practical it is to bring things back to a space like that where it's like there's all kinds of things that are in my head, there's all kinds of things that are in your head, but between us is something shared, and exactly and that, right. one of that shared thing is re, what we call reason. Uh, so exactly. let's let's appeal to that when we're trying to justify things or explain things. And in yeah. in, in my experience, um, one thing I've found when I'm talking with my you know, I, I think I'm probably 
I'm on one side. My some of my friends are on the other side. I think you and I are probably more or less on the same one. Uh, but uh, I ask people to spell things out. I give them a chance to really spell it out. You know, like you 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 sort of repeated a piece of rhetoric. Well, what did you mean? What did you mean by that? Can you explain it? Can you explain it to me? I'm not familiar with that phrase. Um, right. You know, can you go into detail about what you mean when you say X, Y, Z? Right. And by the time the per like your three questions in, um, right. it's a completely different conversation. Absolutely. And, and 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 often I don't mean this in a patronizing way because people do it back to me. But like when someone helps you go three questions into your thinking, you're often thinking about something you might have been very passionate about for the first time. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, and I th- yeah. and I think asking those questions. There's two ways to ask those questions. One is to ask those questions to catch somebody. You know, and to go, see, I knew you didn't know kind of mentality. Where the other is to ask the question in the way that you ask the question. Let me try to understand you. Explain it further. Where did you get that from? What's it about? And to really dig it up and to stay in that, like you, what you just said is perfect, to stay in that space of reason as opposed to asking those questions as a way of winning or attacking the other person. And I think is that's what we're missing in the dialogue now, in the political dialogue. We're missing that, I love what you just said, we're missing that space of reason in any kind of dialogue. And that's, and it's very hard to do, but that's what I strive to stay in when somebody is opposite of my way of thinking. Because, I mean, it's the same thing with friends or in my marriage. I mean, if you think my wife and I are on the same page a lot of times, it's like we're, we're, we're not, <laughs> So on on that on that subject, actually, that's a good that's a good opportunity for us to to switch to the next part of the interview where we talk about your your professional interests uh, more more directly. Maybe uh, you you write in your book uh, you've got a few you share a few anecdotes of your relationship with your wife and, and and things that have happened and maybe that's maybe that's a way into to it. So um, in one of these in one of the stories you tell, you were very sick and came home from the hospital and your wife your wife did something that you learned something from. And so I was wondering if you could maybe share that story with us. I love that story. It's great. So um, I had a hernia surgery. Um, and it was late in the afternoon. And I was in recovery. And all the nurses wanted to do was basically get home. It was, it was after 3 o'clock. They did a 7 to 3 shift. <clears throat> so they, my wife had to come in. She got me dressed. I was really still medicated. I was really groggy. They wheeled me out to the car. They put me in the car. She drives me home. And she helps me up the steps because I'm, I'm weak and I'm just woozy. And so she helps me up the steps. She puts me in bed and she rubs the top of my head, which is bald, and kisses me and says, you know, I'll be back in about 20 minutes. And she comes back and she's got the sterling silver tray in her hand. And on the tray, she's got the best china, you know, with the gold ring around it, right? She's got a bowl with um, uh, soft-boiled eggs. And I love soft-boiled eggs when I get sick, you know, just a slurp of it. And she's got this little vase with a rose, uh, a couple of roses coming out of it. And she's got this bell on the tray as well. And she's got this um, uh, bread plate with two different kinds of bread. There is rye bread and whole wheat bread cut into quarters with jelly, marmalade, and butter. And she's got these three Turkish uh, teacups. One has flat soda because the way they do hernia surgeries, they they blow you up with gas so they can get in there, laparoscopy. And the other was um, tea and the other was juice. 
right? And she says to me, she turns to me, she says, you know, Larry, I'm going to take care of you better than anybody has ever taken care of their husband. She says, when you need anything, you just ring this bell and I'll come running. She says, if I'm with the kids, no problem. Uh, if I hear it, I'll come running. If I'm talking to my parents long distance, no problem. I'll be there as soon as I hear that bell. She says, if I'm in the basement, two floors down, doing laundry, and I hear the faintest of faintest ring, she says, I'm going to come running and taking care of you. Again, she rubs my head. She kisses me on the top of it. She walks out. At one point, I think I've died on the surgery table. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I can't believe she's going to be that nice. So I eat a little bit, but I, you know, and I drink a little bit, but basically I just want to go to sleep. And so I'm ready for her to come. And so I pick up the bell and I shake it and there's nothing coming out. And I look in, she's taking the clacker out of the belt. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was a great moment. I can tell you that. And I just looked at it. I was stunned for a while. And then I put the bell down and I picked up the tray and I went downstairs. I put everything away. I went back to sleep for about 15, 16 hours. I got up the next day. I went to work. My buddy, who lived a couple of doors down from me, had the same procedure. His wife took care of him for three days. She finally came upstairs and says, I don't care if you die. I'm not taking care of you again walks out, he then gets up and he goes to work. And so the point of the story for me is, is there was a dependency in our relationship. I could not, first of all, they wouldn't have given me the procedure if she hadn't been there. So I was dependent on her to be there. I was dependent on her to get me dressed initially. I was dependent on her to give me a ride home. I was dependent on her for that first meal. After that, I didn't need to depend on her anymore. Right. I could be independent enough and do what I needed to do to take care of myself. And she was astute enough to know that that's what she needed to do. Yeah. The 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 epigraph to your book is this phrase, all conflict stems from dependency, but not all dependency creates conflict. That's and I, exactly. think it, I think it beautifully captures this this idea that in order to have a healthy relationship with someone else, you need to be aware of where your dependencies are, because that's where conflicts come from. That's exactly right. And my premise is that anytime you're in conflict, tension or the relationship is not going in the direction that you want it to go, then you're depending on somebody else for your well-being. You're depending on them to agree with you or to do something for you or to change a certain behavior in order for you to be okay. And that conflict you know, we often get caught up in the content of conflict. He said, she said, she said this, he said this. I can't believe he's, he thinks that way. I can't believe she's treating me that way. But so it's not about the conflict because it's not about the content because at the basis of all conflict, you have dependency. So it's about taking that step back and getting the other person out of your head and seeing what part you're playing in that conflict. And then developing yourself, developing certain characteristics, and then stepping back in. But where there's no conflict, it's perfectly fine. I mean, I, I have relatives that are so dependent on each other in their marriages, but it works fine. There's just not the conflict. And that's what I mean by all conflict. That's exactly what you said. That's what I mean by that. 
and I really, I really like how you, you brought up the idea of um, self-reflection, which is a, plays a very important role in, in your book. Um, and that's something I found, I found very appealing because in my sort of unstudied, you know, just kind of, you know, hacked together kind of way of thinking about thinking, um, I've always thought if you have a problem, the first place to look for the cause is in the mirror. Right. And it's not to not that's not about blame. Right. That's about taking control and seeing if if like and it's not it's not don't end there. The other person might be part of the problem, too. But that's the place to start is look in the mirror. Right. No question. It's about it's it's yeah, it's not about critical. It's not about judgment. It's not even about taking personal responsibility because self-reflection is not about that. Self-reflection is about if I get an argument with you, right? and we jam up and can't, can't go any further, I take a step back, get you out of my head, and look at me. Because the reason I'm ha- my part of having that conflict with you is the same part that I'm having conflict with the rest of the world. right? People often come in and they say, I don't have conflict with anybody else but my spouse. Well, that's not true. You know, It's our baggage, and that's what self-reflection is. Well, what baggage am I carrying And then what do I need to do to change that baggage, to heal my wounds if that's the case, or or to develop a characteristic, me to being stronger or more independent or whatever it happens to be, right? What can I develop? But that only comes from that self-reflection. And that's really difficult to do. Yeah. And one of the the things you write about that makes it difficult to do is so like, let's now imagine everybody's on board. They're like, okay, you know, if I've got conflicts in my relationships, that's because I've got some dependencies that I maybe haven't examined and maybe I should be more, I should develop more independence towards. Okay. And now I'm on board. I'm going to do some self-reflection. And all of a sudden you realize there's a lot of selves in, in that reflection. Uh, There's a lot of uh, what you call, you you use the, uh, the uh, metaphor of noise and signal. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what, what you're getting at there. So the noise, um, every, most times when we get into conflict, we have noise about other or self, right? The noise about other is blame and critical, and we know, in quotes, that it's their fault. That's the noise about them. Or we have noise about ourselves. I can't believe I'm so passive. You know, it's a lot of criticism, judgment about self kind of thing. That's the noise. But that kind of noise doesn't allow for self-reflection. Rather, we And, and I, I got to tell you, anytime I have conflict, the very first thing I do is blame the other person. I mean, it's so natural to do. You were talking about politics before. I mean, look, I'm listening to these hearings today, and I, it just the blame that gets passed around is unbelievable. And I think we're in a culture, I don't know what Canada is like, but in our culture in the States, Blame is as instinctual as breathing, right? Criticism is as instinctual as breathing. Going after the other person, holding them responsible is, is, is like breathing for us. And so it's really hard to clear that blame out or that criticism or that judgment about other or about ourself. But that's what the noise is. And in order to be self-reflective, you got to get that out of your head, right? And once you get that out of your head – that sets up for the self-reflection. It's it's really interesting. You bring up the you know maybe a contrast between different different countries like Canada and the United States. Um, we've got our own problems up here, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and they're they're different in different places in the country. Things that happen in the U.S. seem to sort of drift over the border, and then yeah. take take their own form here. 
But there is something, you know, going back to de Tocqueville that foreigners have noticed that there's something special about the United States. Um, and one thing I've often wondered about is if there's something about staging life as a competition between yourself and others that is actually, you know, people are competitive everywhere, but there's something about how like there's this celebration of the idea that you should live your life as though it's a contest against right. other people. And I've sometimes wondered if blaming and deflecting doesn't doesn't play a role in that. Not just because you're freeing yourself of some kind of drag, but you're you're placing it on someone else as well. So it's it's a sort of like double edged sword. Well, not double edged sword. It's like a you know um, very effective tool for getting ahead in that competition. Oh, absolutely. I think any time that the most important value, one of the most important values of a country or culture or society is independence, then you got to fight for it, you know? And anything that gets in your way, you got to beat it down, you got to resist it, you got to be aggressive, you got to plow through it versus being, versus the most important thing being a relationship between two people as opposed to me being independent, right? And that when we're independent, you got to fight more. It's more, it becomes more, um, uh, almost survival of the fittest mentality. And that's where the competition comes from. And you're actually seen as weak when you enter into a cooperative nature and the other person is entering into a com competitive nature. Uh, you're seen as the weaker element there. I personally think it's just the opposite. You know, if I can stand in my own truth of cooperation and trying to work out something with the other person for the sake of a better quality relationship, I think that's stronger. Even if somebody's aggressive or crosses lines or is critical, if I can stand in my truth, I can usually lead most relationships in that direction. And it is and not in an abusive, controlling or domineering way, but in a way that I stand in my own self and I I don't get ruffled. I don't move out of that place. And when I can do that, people follow. It's, it's really interesting. You just reminded me of something, an old, an old memory um, of a Twilight Zone episode from the sort of reboot, I think, in the in the 80s. Um, and there was a, a, a man who was a survivalist. He had he had his little bunker um, that he was stocking up. And survivalism is, you know, the reason I'm going down this path is because survivalism and, um, you know, when the shit hits the fan kind of stuff is actually a, more or less, a, I would say, characteristic, a, a, a more or less uniquely American phenomenon. So, um, and, and there's a, what this, what the episode goes into is that this guy has a desire to be surviving against everyone fighting him. Yeah. He has a right. desire for this and the end times to come. And what happens is there's, Either he sees like a nuclear explosion in the distance. And by the way, we're, we're going back in time in this episode. In the 80s, people were worried about nuclear holocaust to anyone listening who doesn't remember that or know that. Um, and it was a very big preoccupation uh, for about 30 years in people's imaginations in the West. And um, uh, so for whatever reason, he thinks that nuclear war has come and he locks himself in his bunker. And he, over time, he hears various noises outside, but he's going to be tough and he's going to survive. So he doesn't open the door. And then the, the big reveal at the end of the episode is that a, a nuclear bomb did go off, but they uh, covered the site with a big, huge dome. And there he is buried 
under that dome with the beautiful uh, world going on, including his family alive around him, but he won't leave his bunker. And there's something uh, so pathetic and weak about this vision of strength that's actually all about... I, I personally think it's actually like survivalism is actually a projection of the way a person is living morally. That, right. That that's actually how they are living their life. I can uh, see as, that. As though in antag everyone else is a threat antagonistically. Right. And, and when you put yourself in that kind of existential situation, it's a way of casting off the burdens of morality and ethics and connection to others. Because right. if your life's at stake, then presumably anything goes. So you right. can just leave all that human baggage behind you. Right. And it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. You can you can be more focused and centered on that road and and not get caught up in the ambiguities and the 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 soft spots and the rounded spots of a relationship. And it's just so it so misses the point because I think every relationship has that man, I don't know what's going on here, you know, or, or that, gosh, I don't understand this. Or, you know, I, I believe that in, in most intimate or close relationships, whether it be friendships or, or intimate partners, that you never solve issues. They evolve over time. Like in the book, you mentioned the book, like uh, about my wife and I going to sleep together, 35 years and every time I, we think we solve it, it pops back up. But it doesn't look now like it did the first year of our marriage or the 10th year or the 20th or even the 30th year. And that evolution, right, cannot take place with the kind of mindset you just described. You stay stuck. There's no movement. And I think well-being and happiness and quality of life is about movement, and that man in the bunker can't move. He is stuck. And the beauty is is like in an arm's length. All he's got to do is go out. But he's so stuck in this that he can't move forward. And that's a great metaphor. That really is. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a wonderful story. It's uh, it's well. Speaking of wonderful stories, so you just invoked one yourself. Um, that uh, that you that you talk about in your book. Um, about how your wife. I think you you go to bed early and your wife goes to bed late. Uh, and, right. and you've you've you. One of the things you talk about is how like this will always be an issue. Um, and uh, if I understand correctly, um, you you have what many people might think of as a surprising view of uh compromise. And whether right. whether sort of the conventional view of what a compromise is is actually a good thing or a bad thing in a relationship, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I think compromise is a shortcut to that self-reflection or to really hashing out a relationship. To uh, it's like a survivalist kind of thing, and it's a it's a legal issue. Compromise is I'll give up something I don't want to give up. You give up something that you don't want to give up for the sake of because we can't work this out. The problem with that is that if I compromise with my wife and I think I'm doing my part, I'm going to be watching her to make sure she's doing her part. So compromise actually creates mistrust as opposed to anything else. It's that In the context of that story about going to sleep together, after five years of marriage, I say to my wife, we need to compromise. She says, okay. So we sit down and we decide that, I will come to sleep early three days a week, 
right? And she'll come to sleep with me. And three days a week, I'll stay up late with her, right? And the seventh day, it was Saturday night. We never had to worry about it. So the very first time we tried to initiate that, I go to sleep early. She stays up late. We argue the next morning about whose turn was first. Because compromise is about giving up something you really don't want to give up. And it doesn't evolve a relationship forward. It's And it's one of the myths that we live with that I think is really tragic in relationships. That you see these these memes or you see people professing all the time, I'm in a good relationship because we compromise. Well, no, you're in a good relationship because of other reasons, but it's not about compromising. Compromise doesn't work. I, I have never, been, over the years, the few times I've got into spats with contractors or whoever I got in spats with, and you got lawyers involved and they compromise, you walk away just feeling so angry about it, you know, because you didn't get what you really felt like you needed to get. So, and that's my shtick on compromise. And it's very hard to get across to people because we have always been taught that one of the key elements of relationships is compromise. And I just don't buy it for those reasons. Yeah, I think I think that's such a great that's such a great story and explanation for a couple of reasons. One is that um, often you know people find it hard to talk about things that seem kind of mundane or trivial, even though they might have huge impacts on their on their lives and their relationships. And so something something about like when you go to sleep, like you know if that if that's the big thing in your relationship, then that's the big thing in your relationship. Like don't don't pretend it's not. Then don't be quick to solve it. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and 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 accept that maybe this might be a problem that you're going to have forever. Um, and and but also that I just really like the. It's just so compelling to me the explanation that like when you introduce you know a compromise of this kind, um, you're introducing a new problem. Right. You have your old problem is there, but now you've got a new problem, which is you've got this compromise that you've got to surveil and maintain right. and remember and 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 spell out. You know, That's and and stick to. Uh, so, you know, probably, probably one step back, not a step forward exactly. uh, when you're doing something like that. That's uh, a tremendous point. You're putting one problem on top of another problem. Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, so I guess, uh, the last question I guess I'd like to ask you about that is uh, a bit cheesy, but you know, for, any, for anyone listening who's having trouble and say, let's say, let's say a married relationship, uh, what would be your, the, the number one thing you've, you've learned in all your all your time spent thinking and talking about this to people that if you were, if it was a total stranger and you didn't know what their problem was and you only had a minute to give them some advice, what would you, what would you say? I would say that they can create the kind of relationships they want, regardless of what their spouse or partner is doing. All they've got to do, and it's difficult, is take a step back, become self-reflective, stand in that truth and step back into relationship over and over and over and over and over again. That's what I would say to them. But most people believe that the only way I can have a good relationship is if the other person changes. And it's just not the case. So my one-minute shtick is create what you want. Don't do it abusively or domineering or don't try to pull somebody, but do it through self-growth. Do it by developing those characteristics you need to develop to have the kind of relationship you want. If you want a loving relationship, be loving. Or maybe if you want a loving relationship, learn how to set a limit. You know, loving relationships isn't, like I said before, isn't just about kumbaya or holding hands or flowers or any of that. It may be saying, knock it off. Stop it. 
I don't want that anymore. That might be a loving relationship as well. So that's what I would say in a minute to somebody. Well, thank you very much. That's a really, that's a really great answer. Um, okay, so uh, moving on to the, the last part of the interview, or we, read, uh, we usually talk about the person's experience as an author and a writer. So you, you've already told us a little bit about your story, about how you came to a place where you, where you wrote the book. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, that that is a preoccupation of self-published authors is building their platform, uh, right. getting, getting, getting attention and doing this over time. And so you've been making the rounds, as you mentioned earlier, doing radio and podcast interviews and things like that. Do you have a strategy for how you approach that? So for example, do you, you do you say, I want to do two shows a week or something like that? So um, this process of writing a book has been one of evolution for me, personal growth. I was talking to a professional writer the other day, and I said to him, how can I get national? You know, what am I missing about this? What am I not doing right? And he gave me this, you know, you got to write a 10 page, whatever I got to write, and you got to do it professionally, and you got to get that out, that kind of stuff. But what I found is that it's not in the particulars what I need to do. It's in my own self growth. So that when I try to do, for example, for years, I try to do my own marketing. I'm not a marketeer. I can't do it. So I try, the, I try to get a team around me is what I do. So I'll tell you how I got – I'm working with a marketing firm now. And I'll tell you exactly how I did it. It's a great story, I think. So I go after about a year of trying to market myself. I finally look in that mirror. I finally get that self-reflection. I'm going to go, Larry, you don't like cold calls. You don't like to do this. You've had no success. Give it up. Reach out into the world. Grow into that Turn over some stones. Connect to people that you feel uncomfortable with that can do that work for you. So that was my growth. So I go online and I find this fancy, really good website, right? And it's this marketing firm that does large national and international kind of marketing. And I go to myself and I say, They'll, you never can afford this, man. Just give it up. Don't. And I go, no, that's the old Larry that gives up before you even try, right? So again, it's that taking a step back and is developing myself. And I said, I'm going to fill in the contact page, right? So the next day, the owner of the marketing firm, there's like 70 people in this marketing firm. They're based in Boston and Rhode Island, Warwick, Rhode Island. He calls me. He says, Larry, this is Chris Cianci. I said, Chris? He says, yeah, I used to teach your son tennis. And before you know it, he gives me this discounted rate, right, because we've known each other. And he knows I can't afford his high quality, his high profile, his, his highest rate that he charges most people. He gives me this discounted rate. And I say to him, the only problem, I really appreciate you doing this discounted rate for me. I said, but I don't want a discounted service. He says, not a problem. We got you covered. And so for the last year, that's how I'm doing this. It was me reaching out in a way that I had never reached out before to a place that had quality. And before I wasn't reaching out to quality because I didn't think I could afford it. I wasn't good enough. All those other kinds of things in my mind. And yet I stepped forward with it. And I'm still working with them. That's how they found you. That's a really great story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and it's a, a good lesson to people, uh, I think. I mean, easy to, easy to say, hard to do. 
Absolutely. But, but, you know, and, 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 and there's a number of features there, one of which is realizing about yourself that you like, there are things you, you don't like doing them. Forcing or, yourself to do them is, you know, I mean, if you really have to, I suppose, but like, and this is actually something that a lot of people um, talk about in self-publishing blogs is that like marketing is really important. If you don't, if you're bad at it and you don't want to do it, find another way. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean don't do it, but like, right. don't do it yourself. It took me almost two and a half years to find this marketing firm. I tried individuals that didn't work. I tried lesser firms that didn't work. I tried to reach out to family. I tried everything until I went, this is not working. Right. And you just don't, it's an evolution. And did they, did they set up your, I'm sorry to get, this is the, the last part of the episode where we really get into the weeds, but did they set up your website for you? Because you've got a really good professional website. So I had set up the website with a professional developer and they have added to it, subtracted from it, enhanced it. So that's part of their marketing, yes. Okay. And so one, one thing, one decision you've made, pricing is a big decision for, for anything that you're selling. Uh, but you've, you've decided to, you've got a print version of your book available on Amazon for I think about 15 bucks or something like that. There's a Kindle, oh. Kindle version for a few bucks. But you also uh, have the Kindle version available for free download from your website. Right. Um, why did you decide to, to, to make that last decision, to make it available? One of the options is to get it for free. So it's also on audio. You can get a, you know, audio out, out of Amazon as well. The, the freeness of it for me is that I'm, uh, you know, I read a book years ago about writing and writing books and publishing. And I, one of the things that stuck in my mind really intensely was that you don't write a book for the sake of writing a book. You write a book because you believe in what you're doing and what you're writing about. I mean, you're in it. It becomes you. You become it. And it's like a mission almost. It's like your purpose. It's a meaning in life. And so my purpose, I have found out through writing this book, because I initially wanted to be an author. That's what I did for 30 years, trying to write. And I wrote poems and haikus and bukus and 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 um, uh, uh, novellas and novel, and nothing ever got published. And through the writing of this book, I realized I don't want to be an author. I want to get the word out about relationships because I really believe that what I have either stumbled on or what I've developed over the years is really a better way of doing relationships. So if somebody can't afford the book, it's a free download. Sometimes when I do conferences, I'll give out 150 books to people just to just for, you know, just take them if you want to read it kind of thing. Um, and so that's why I do it for free for people who can't afford it in my own private practice, because I still run a full time private practice. I do about it used to be maybe 15 percent of sliding scale. And I see some people for free who really can't afford it. Some people for five dollars, some people for twenty five and fifty. But uh, now it's up to almost 40% of the people are a sliding scale just because of health care and the expense and insurance is not covering it. And people who are on Obamacare are now can't afford it, and so they don't have insurance. So, again, I don't, I don't want to sound saintly because, trust me, and you can ask my wife, I'm anything but saintly, right? But I just want to get the word out more so than anything else. So that's why it's a download for free. That's a that's a really great explanation. You reminded me of there's um there's an old line from the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge who who said you 
if you find yourself attracted to writing poetry, you need to ask yourself if you want to write poetry or be a poet. Right. Uh, and if you want to be a poet, stop writing poetry. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely perfect. That's exactly right. That's perfect. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank thank you very much. I think that might be a good note to end on. I want to uh, really uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, do this podcast and for being so uh, forthcoming and sharing with, with all the valuable information that you've learned and with your life story as well. Uh, you're very welcome. And I, I, this is one of the best podcasts. Uh, you're a tremendous interviewer and um, you're so into the conversation when we're talking that I've really enjoyed this a lot. So thank you for being on your end of this. Oh, well, thank you very much for saying that. I really, I really appreciate that. You're welcome. Absolutely. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.